it's a little bit interesting that it's an eighth day. We often talk of God's seven thousand year plan or seven days that God is working with us. But it's interesting in the scripture, God shows there's an eighth day. And we know in reality, it's a time of great salvation. So let's go to the Leviticus chapter 23 and read the instruction where in Leviticus, we find God outlined his holy days and gave instruction to their observance. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 36, It says, For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. So the Bible very clearly shows us here within the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day period, God then added to that, the eighth day, which is a holy convocation. It goes on to emphasize, it is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. And so this day, the eighth day, the last great day, as we refer to it, and I'll show you in the Scripture why we do, because it is a reference in the New Testament, is a day that God has set apart as the final holy day of the year. But it's also one of the most exciting days in our understanding. It's one that has a great influence on the nature of the work and how we carry out and understand the work that God has given us to do today as a church. And so I'd like to, in this sermon, first show you, in the New Testament, the indications we have of understanding and also the statements that Jesus Christ made and the emphasis that He gave in the book of John, to the events that related to that period of the ending of the feast and the things that he then taught immediately after that period of time. So let's go here to the book of John, in John chapter 7 in the New Testament. In John 7, and in verse 1, we get the setting. It says, After these things... Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And so, we know the time of year, it was in the fall, and it was at the very beginning, or it was right before the feast started, and it describes the events. We find that in verse 14... It says, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So Christ, we clearly see, was, did attend the feast, and then it brings out in the middle of the feast that he went to the temple and he began to openly teach. We read then in verse 37, and I'm going to skip ahead to that part which is particularly pertinent to the subject of the last great day. And where we have drawn that term from in the church is this verse. In verse 37 of John chapter 7, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now, Jesus on this day, which it's interesting if you read the Jewish understanding of why they kept feasts and what they were doing and some of their ceremonies, you'll find that during the Feast of Tabernacles, they had two particular ceremonies that were unique and outstanding. One was a special ceremony where they went to the water gate, and it's called the water ceremony. The other was a festival of lights. And Christ drew upon those practices, and he did so at the end or the last great day. And in the living church of God, we believe that this was, as stated in the scripture, the last great day. Not the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, rather the eighth day, which was a Sabbath day. Christ then made this statement. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Because the water ceremony literally was one of asking God and thanking God for the blessing of water. He then went on to say, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Because one of the things the Jews had some, you might say, not necessarily understanding regard, but they recognized it was an association of God's spirit to water. But Christ made it plain that the source of that water, the source of the Spirit, was through Him. We read on verse 39, it says, This He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the the crowd that heard this, uh, some were stirred to believe that He was a prophet, Others, that he truly was the Christ, and others, of course, were upset by the words he said. So we know that they dispersed. There was disagreement. You can read that as you read the account. Let's notice then chapter 8, verse 1. Christ himself went out. Uh, they all went to each one their own house. The end of verse, or excuse me, chapter, 5, chapter 7, verse 53 uh, tells us that. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. Now, one of the things to to note, it's very, very possible, and I, I think probable, that Christ made this statement at the beginning of, that is back in verse 37, at the very beginning of the last great day. Because the day begins as the sun sets and it darkens. It was not... Apparently, from what we can read here, uh, what we might think of during the middle of that time, he actually came back early the next morning. He came into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And if you look ahead in the same chapter, you'll find in verse 20, the words that he spoke, he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. And... And so the first thing that took place, which is interesting, because as we'll see as the meaning of these days, this day unfolds, it's a time of judgment, it's a time of God's forgiveness, and it's a time when God will pour out His Spirit, opening the eyes and understanding of those individuals that who who never had an opportunity to know the truth of God, who have lived physically, who have died, and are brought to life but now for the opportunity of salvation. So let's notice the topics, and I'll move through them quickly, and notice an emphasis that follows in the next several chapters. The first is a woman who's brought 
without question, breaking God's law. A woman who was caught in adultery. Now, rather than bring sentence upon her, we find that Christ, an example that perhaps all of us should be aware of and are aware of, because it's one many people refer to, he knelt down and he began to write in the ground or in the sand. And as he did so, as he wrote words, we don't know what was written, one by one the accusers left. Until finally only Jesus Christ was there with the woman. There's no question of her sin. But notice what Christ said to her in verse 10. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, in in reality, Jesus Christ is saying something here that God is going to do with mankind. He did not come to condemn man. We're not being condemned. This world is not condemned in their sins. God plans to give them a time of forgiveness and a time of salvation. Verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Remember, another aspect of the Jewish celebration was the festivity or ceremony of lights. And they literally lit up the temple of God so brightly that it lit up the entire uh, surrounding area. But Christ pointed out here, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He then goes on and talks literally about his witness and the truth of his witness. And I'll I'll not read that. I I want to pick up the theme of uh, those things that are perhaps more directly pertinent to the meaning of the last great day. Now, it's very meaningful what Christ says in in a sense of his witness and the truth of what he says. And so it's helpful if you would just read through those passages and keep in mind there's there's a theme here. There's a theme of what God is going to do. And when we look at the bigger picture as revealed in the scripture of the meaning of this period of time, Christ also very plainly identifies that his relationship with God, that he proceeded from God and he goes back to God, and that he was sent by God. He made it clear in chapter 8 that if you hear his words, you will do so because you're of God. In other words, that God's the one who opens the mind. God's the one who gives understanding. Notice verse 47. It says, He who is of God hears God's words. That's chapter 8, verse 47. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. God had not opened their understanding. He allowed them to remain in blindness, even though Jesus Christ was in their presence, and He was speaking very openly to them, but they simply did not have spiritual understanding. He says in verse 56, He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so he's obviously talking here in part, looking back to a part of what God was doing. Because the first coming of Jesus Christ was a very important part of the plan of God. It's pictured in the Passover. It's the beginning of the holy days we keep. 
the festival season. Then notice going to chapter 9, the events that followed. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's interesting that the miracle that Christ performed was the one of giving someone who had been blind sight. Because spiritually, that is what God is going to do to those who are brought up and given life at the time of this day, the last great day. So it's interesting when you look at John 7, where we realize that Christ stood up. It was on the last great day. The things that He taught, the things that He emphasized, and even the miracle that was performed. So I'd like to then move on and address the question, how much of this and how much did the New Testament apostles, the servants of God, understand? The reason I ask that, because to me it's personally interesting, I recognize that without the revelation of the book of Revelation, we would have a a general picture, but we would not have the specific understanding that we do today. Because we understand that there is a 1,000-year reign, a millennial reign of Christ. We know the sequence of events, which we'll go through a little later, of Satan being bound, of a 1,000 years of the rule of Christ. We know that Satan will then be loosed for a short season. And then after that, a time that the Bible refers to as the great white throne, a judgment period. So the Bible tells us in Revelation a sequence that as I read and study the Scripture, I've never ever, without that chapter of chapter 20 of Revelation, would, would feel I could put together. But with Revelation 20, we can bring it together. And we can bring together a number of statements, statements made by Christ, examples of things that happen in the Scripture, indications that God gave of what He would do. I'd like to point out first... The first indication, in a sense, uh, I believe that uh, what had to do with the very teachings of Christ among His uh, disciples, because He sent them out. And when He sent them out, He made it clear that not everyone was going to hear them. They were not going to be received by everyone. Mark chapter 6 and verse uh, 7, we find where Jesus Christ sent out the twelve. So he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. 
They literally told him, just, you go out unprepared. Now, did he expect that they were uh, not going to be taken care of? No. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. So they were not to just move from house to house within a community. Uh, Obviously, where they were first received, they were to stay, and that was no longer to be an issue. And I think humanly we can understand how as God gave them His Spirit and they were received and miracles performed, uh, that could have become an issue. And the emphasis would have taken away from the message that they brought. Notice what Christ said, And whoever will not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. There are people today who question the concept of a work as a witness. That we would do a work knowing that in some cases there would only be a small response. But you know, that was the very instruction Jesus Christ gave to his apostles or his disciples. That they would go out, that they would do a work, and he made it plain that there would be occasion when they would not be received. But when they did, when they were not received, they were to literally physically do something that was a testimony or a witness against that individual. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so, when Christ said this, he was looking forward to a time of judgment. Part of the work that we do today has this very same direction. That we look forward, knowing that we're a part of a work that will not culminate even at the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to culminate at the end or the fulfillment of the plan of God. There are many people who have been witnessed to by the work of God. As some even in the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s. Today, many of those individuals are deceased. God did not call them. But the time will come when God brings them to life. And they will be able to witness, not only of their own experience, but to others, that there was a work of God. That they heard. They did not understand, but they physically heard the word preached. Perhaps they read magazines or articles. I'm always amazed sometimes by the people that you run into who heard of Mr. Armstrong or heard of the Church of God. I recently did a a funeral in Kentucky. It was kind of in the hill country, and the individual who died was a a mate of a member of God's church. He was not a member, but he was very well known in the community. And so the entire funeral home was filled. They even took the chairs out of the offices and benches from off the porch so people would have a place to sit, and still there were people standing. The graveside was a family graveside out in the country in a hilltop. And because of the nature of the drive, the, the road actually entered at, or ended at the gravesite. So as a car processional, which was very long, uh, got to the site, uh, everyone was blocked in. And no one could leave till the very last car backed away and so on. So I stayed 
at the funeral and after the funeral for a considerable period of time. During that time, I had several people come up to me and ask me, from what you preach, do you know anything about Mr. Armstrong? And, and of course, uh, I said, well, yes, Mr. Armstrong ordained me. And to my shock, I had one lady come up to me and said, I used to listen to him a long time ago. I think it was a radio church of God. Is that right? And I was shocked because that's talking back in the, um, I think it was probably in the late 50s, early 60s, that that transition took place. And so I told her, I said, well, if you're, more, if you're interested in what uh, is happening today, I said, Mr. Armstrong ordained me, uh, you can certainly give me a call. Now, I've not heard from her, but you know what? Well, witness went out. The same thing is brought out in Luke chapter 10. I'll not spend too long here. You can read it. In Luke chapter 10, we read the account here where Jesus Christ sent out the 70. In verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus appointed 70 others also. And so they were sent out. And he gave them the same instruction. He, it's a longer uh, in terms of the details of the instruction. But he tells them that, verse 10, But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say. So it's, it's a little more clear here. They didn't just physically go out and kind of you know, kick the dust off their feet. Uh, there's uh, groups of people who practice that today. They actually went out with a message. It says, The very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And so Christ then goes on and speaks of uh, this fact, which is repeated, that there are various groups of people at various times that God says that when they're brought up, that it'll be more tolerable. They'll be more receptive. They'll be more uh, willing uh, because of their experiences in this life. I think sometimes we might think, well, this life really means nothing when God resurrects something, but the Scripture indicates otherwise. You know, in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks of the Pharisees who, when they won a convert, made them twofold more the child of hell than themselves. Well, what does that mean? How can you be twofold more the child of hell? Well, Christ was saying they were more deeply steeped. They, they were, perhaps in their sincerity, more caught up in the false teachings and the doctrines than even the Pharisees themselves, who Jesus Christ said were hypocritical. At times they taught things they didn't practice. They didn't really believe. Whereas sometimes a convert was very deeply convicted. And so they were very moved and they were stirred. And God says that individual might even be harder for them. It's going to be more difficult. And so it does make a difference. When you see someone of good character and, and good values, you know, realize that as even as Jesus Christ said to the thief who acknowledged his sin who recognized that Christ was innocent, that he should not have been crucified. Christ recognized the human quality that that man would be very receptive. And he told him that he would be in paradise with him. He saw a heart. And brethren, there are times when we see a heart that 
is a part of someone's life or their conduct. I guess in our society we might refer to them as a good man or a good woman. And we know that when God gives them His truth, they're going to be very, very receptive. And that's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand that in a relationship to others whom God has not, not called, it's important that for us to understand that in terms of our family, if God's not calling someone, that if we encourage them to be a good person, to develop strong character, that it's not a waste. It's going to be of eternal value. So the disciples had very clearly, by the words of Christ, an understanding that some of what they did and what they said was a witness. But it, it was a witness which looked forward to a time of judgment. We know in Second Peter chapter 3, in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that God inspired Peter to write and that he would understand that God wanted salvation for all mankind. And it was very clear, I know, that Peter in his life realized that the church did not reach the lives of everyone. It was only among those that God called. And the church, even though it was, in terms of history, a fairly large period, uh, or the church was fairly large in that period of history, uh, it certainly was not the dominant church. Uh, Christianity was borrowed by many, but even though it was, it still was a very small and minority uh, group. And the true church of God was and has always been a, a little flock. And so Peter knew that. And yet he said, God inspired him to write, and he understood. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we said this in the context of what God is doing. The day of the Lord, the new heavens and new earth, and so in a very brief statement, he focused on one of the very important things, and that God has a time of salvation. And that time lies ahead, it's represented, and it's the very meaning of this day, the last great day of the Feast of God. Let's notice also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that Paul wrote a similar statement here. In verse 4, or let's start in verse 3, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. That all would be saved. That all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, it's very clear that they had some understanding that God had a plan. Now, Paul makes it even a plainer in, in a way in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, he talks about Israel and the fact that God brought in from the Gentile community, which uh, during the, even the ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, none were brought into the church uh, or into the fold by the work of of Jesus Christ. That was done by God's Spirit, as we know in the book of Acts, at a later time. Paul, as he administered to and was the apostle to the Gentiles, 
He also served congregations where there were uh, Israelitish or Jewish brethren. And so he tells us here in Romans chapter 11, and I'd like to focus on just the uh, latter part of his statement. It's interesting to read uh, all of it and the entirety of chapter 11. In verse 25, it says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. See, it had been a mystery. It was not understood. But he's telling them, you should not be ignorant of it. Because God had given understanding. Not the understanding, I don't think they had quite what we have. But God had given them a certain understanding, a certain clarity, that there was a time when He would bring salvation to Israel. There was a time of judgment when there would be an opportunity for those who were blinded, those who were not called. He says, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has, has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. That was his understanding. That God was going to save the vast majority of the Israelitish people. It says, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul goes on to expound on this passage. It says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Paul understood that God was working, literally, to bring about man's salvation. And He was doing so in a way where with the free moral agency that God has given to us, that each of us would be given the greatest opportunity possible to receive that salvation, that we would respond. And God called you into the church of God today. He did so knowing and seeing your heart, knowing that with His Spirit, if you use God's Spirit, that you will be in God's kingdom if you simply yield yourself to Him. And that's not just true of ourselves. That's true of every man, woman, and child that has lived or will ever live. God's going to work for their salvation. They're His children. Paul marveled at this because he realized it was a plan that God was carrying out. He said in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. You know, the servants of God had a very similar attitude when God brought into the church the Gentiles. Now, we know it was by the hand of God. It was a miracle of God. Occasionally, I'll hear someone, and I, I realize it's often done just simply uh, because we form certain habits. We tend to think of Acts 15 of, 
a, a, a topic of circumcision. That's really not actually the case. The topic of Acts 15 is that God had brought into the church the Gentiles. God had revealed that He would give His Spirit to them even though they were not circumcised. That then raised other issues. Should they sacrifice? What should their relationship be to the temple? Some thought to ensure salvation, that maybe it would be good if they went back and were circumcised. But the church of God understood what God had done. And they had accepted it. You can read that in Acts chapter 11. You can read, notice here, after the events of Acts 9 and 10. And by the way, Acts chapter 9 is very important. Because what happened was such a a powerful thing. God ensured that Peter's word and his testimony be well received. Because just prior to those events taking place, you can read in Acts chapter 9, some of the most outstanding miracles that were performed in the New Testament by God's apostles took place. Dorcas was brought back through the prayers of Peter. She was brought back to life. And that was witnessed throughout that area. So they knew in a very powerful way that God was working through Peter. And so then when God used Peter... Literally, to command uncircumcised Gentiles because they had received the Spirit. He commanded them to be baptized. They knew that God was working in this man. And so when he then gave witness, because they heard this in the church. Notice chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem... Those who were of the circumcision contended with him. So initially they did, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, you can read his explanation. So he went through and he told them what God had done and what he had done, how he had responded. Now when they had heard these things, notice what it tells us in verse 18. Well, let's notice what Peter said, verse 17, and then what they said. It says, If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? He put himself in a very clear issue, and he asked them, I think, in fact, the same question. I could not withstand God. Are you going to withstand God? When they heard these things, verse 18, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. See, God revealed to them something that was unacceptable on the understanding they had prior to the intervention of God's direct hand. In Acts 15, it is important when they discuss this matter The words of James in verse 18, and I'll just go directly to this verse. He said, known to God from eternity are all his works. Because God had laid out a plan. God was beginning to reveal to them part of it. Part of it happened literally physically in their very life. That God brought into the church of God and granted his spirit to Gentiles. God has given to us today through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, an understanding 
where we see some of the elements, some of the things that we know they understood, but perhaps we're not able to bring together certain statements in the Old Testament that I'm sure God's servants were troubled by and wondered, what do these things mean? God's given us that understanding. And so I'd like to go through then and show that understanding very plainly from the Scripture as we look at the meaning then of this day. It is a time of salvation. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the outline. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, John writes, because God gave this to him in a vision. It was very real. We know at times that John literally reacted. He physically fell to his knees. And he was asked to rise because he was in the presence not of God, but of an angel. And so he reacted he physically. It was so real to him, he literally went through it. In verse 4, he says of Revelation chapter 20, and I'm kind of breaking into the flow here, but I, I need to do so just to cover the material. It says, I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads. You have to realize John saw these people earlier in vision. It implies, as I read it, he recognized them. He saw these people, these individuals, he saw them go through trial, through persecution, perhaps martyred, and now he sees them again. And he recognizes them. And he sees them being resurrected and being given responsibility and being literally becoming kings and priests. It says, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So he describes this then as, this is the first resurrection. He talks of that. We then read where Satan is loose for a short period. And then notice verse 11. Because verse 11 is about the rest of the dead. It's about all these people that he saw, but they were not resurrected. Because in his vision, he literally saw the end time age. He saw billions of people. Because on this earth today are six to seven billion people. This earth is far more crowded than it was during the days when John himself walked this earth. And I'm sure he immediately realized that with all the cities and, and mass transit, everything he saw, I'm sure it was astounding to him. Perhaps one of the most astounding things, though, was just the density of population. That wasn't millions and millions of people, it was billions and I'm sure that was very astounding to God's servant. In verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne. So after Satan is removed, he's cast into the lake of fire. Then he says, He saw this great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So he's identifying who he saw. We later know in, in chapter 21, the Bible speaks of the new heavens and new earth. So he's identifying here's Jesus Christ returning, in a sense, to judge. And he's on a throne of righteousness. That's what white symbolizes in the Scripture. And I saw the dead. So now he sees the dead, small and great, standing before God. 
And books were open. The books in the Greek language simply is Biblos. That God opened the Bible. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So God opened up understanding. He opened up also the reality of their salvation. Today, if God's called you, your name is in the book of life. God opened this book to these people at this time. And the dead were judged according to their works. So God gave them life, as we'll see here in a minute, by going back to the Old Testament. And then they were judged. And they were judged by the things which were written in the books. You wonder, on what basis will you be judged? You know, it's an interesting Bible study. There are some things Jesus Christ specifically points to. But all of them are in the book. They're all within our Bibles. God's going to judge us on the things that we've been given, the things we know, the things that we can read. God will reward us also. God says if you invite someone and you take care of and you give to the poor, that you have reward with him. You think God's going to forget that and just sort of, well, that was a good deed and I, I'm, you know. No, he gave his word. He said if you do certain things, he will reward you. That you will be rewarded ten times, a hundred times, so on, in his kingdom. And we should not lose sight of that. That's very plainly stated. God keeps his word. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we find a passage that is a vision also. God gave to his servant Ezekiel, who was a witness to the children of Israel. They did not respond. And I'm sure he was in despair. And God revealed to him what the end of the matter would be. That what he was doing had worth and value. In verse 37, it says, The hand of the Lord came upon me. Or excuse me, chapter 37, verse 1. It's Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, sat me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. So God, in vision, brought him to this valley just filled with bones. He caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel answered probably as we would, you know, Lord God, you know. <laughs> and I don't think he knew. But he said, God, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinew on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin. That's not a description of a spiritual resurrection to spiritual life. That's what we are today. We're flesh and blood and we have sinew and, and our life depends upon breath. And so God brought them physically to life. Now, who is pictured in this vision? Well, it's the people to whom God's servant served. Notice as we read ahead, we find in verse 9 that they were brought up and then literally bone came to bone. And then God brought literally the wind or breath. And it was brought to these individuals who now literally were 
as the Scripture says, an exceeding great army. In verse 11, he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost. We ourselves are cut off. You know, I, I suspect that would be the first reaction of somebody who thought they were going to be in heaven, playing a harp, in a beatific vision, and suddenly they find themselves in this huge mass of people. They're all there, suddenly physically alive, and I, I suspect their thinking is, this isn't heaven. <laughs> so the automatic thought would be, it might be the other place. We're lost, you know. <laughs> well, that's not what God has in store. But it's interesting how they react. There, there is a reaction that we're lost. We, we have no hope. Now, I think many people also die with that same frame of mind. Because they look back on their life and they realize spiritually that, you know, it's over. And so without God's understanding and without knowledge, they suddenly do not have the same hope that God's given to us. And what does God say? Verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. See, they did not know before this time. But then they're going to know. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. So God physically is going to resurrect. In this case, it reveals to us Israel. In the book of Revelation, we know that what it speaks of is the rest of the dead. It's not limited to Israel. It's to the rest of the dead. It's to all of mankind. Now, how long will they live? And what is God going to do? The indication we have in the Scripture is in Isaiah chapter 65. Now, we teach and explain this passage based on what the Scripture itself says. There are individuals in times past who have said, well, you really can't prove a hundred-year period. But you know, if you look at what the Bible says, the Bible itself limits the time frame that it speaks of. It's not our words, and it's not... You know, it was not Mr. Armstrong or others, uh, Dr. Hay or Mr. Meredith or others who said, well, it's 100 years. No, it's the Bible. And so what we explain is what's in the Scripture. And as we read it, I think you'll see that very plainly. That's why we believe and understand this as a 100-year period. And it is our understanding based on this passage. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now, if you look in Revelation, you realize that's chapter 21. That's after the great white throne judgment. So, what's taking place here? Well, it's saying God's doing this. Now it's looking back. Notice the second part of the verse. The former, those things that preceded, shall not be remembered or come to mind. And so, we're really looking back. 
in terms of what now we re- was written. It says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. And we will. But God's going to create new heavens and new earth will last forever. But we celebrate in keeping God's festivals and the, even this day, the last great day, is to fulfill a plan. It's a temporary thing. The scripture tells us, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem rejoicing, her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And again, that's very much Revelation chapter 21. Now notice what it says. When this time comes, when this takes place, it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. So God says when this time comes, there's not going to be an infant from there that has lived only a few days. Nor will there be an old man who has not filled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. Now, how can a child die 100 years old unless it's brought to life and it lives for 100 years? That's why we understand this as a 100-year period. Because God says that. You take the extreme. The extreme is an infant. Dies perhaps within minutes of birth. God resurrects and gives life. How long is that infant going to live? The Bible says it will live to be a hundred years old. Now, that's the one extreme. What about the other? What about somebody maybe lived for years and now God resurrects them? Well, the scripture says, but the sinner being 100 years old. So now we have the other. If you were to take and try to outline something, you have two sides to outline it. And we have this side. It says 100 years. And then we get on the other side, and you know what? It says the same thing, 100 years. It says the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. That was that God has judged them. They've had their opportunity. Now, it goes on and describes that, yes, they will live normal lives. They're going to build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards. They're going to know God's truth. They're going to be blessed. Now, some of what's said here is also, remember, looking back. Could it include some description of those things that Jesus Christ does during the millennial reign? Absolutely. But does it also include, very clearly, the 100 years? No question. Because that's a part, when you look back from the time God creates a new heavens and new earth, and you look back, you're looking back to the hand of God and what He did to bring individuals into his kingdom and his family. And so it's from this understanding, it's from this passage, that we understand that the last great day represents a 100-year period. That it represents literally a time of salvation. A time when God is going to give his truth and his understanding to all people. It is a time prophesied in the scripture. Notice here in Isaiah chapter 49... I mentioned some of the prophecies that people perhaps did not understand. We can read today and know what God is doing. But they also impart something to us. They impart God's Spirit and His attitude toward man 
and how God Himself looks forward to this time, this time of salvation. In Isaiah chapter 49, in verse 13, it says, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. That's how I think many times men feel. God's afar off. He's forsaken us. Now what God says in response to this, Can a woman forget her nursing child? God's not going to forget the babies that have been born and the children that whose lives have been taken, people who have had life cut short, and even those who died of elderly age, but simply all their lives lived in blindness. So it's, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. God says he does not forget. He says, see, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Jesus Christ gave his life, not just for those he's called today. He gave his life for all of mankind. Every single human being accepts and needs the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says, your walls are continually before me. Our life is continually before God. He does not forget one. He has an incredible capacity. He remembers even the very hairs on our head of everyone. And so to forget someone, God just simply does not. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, says, In this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. Now that's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. But brethren, it's also going to happen on a far greater scale in terms of humanity. All at one time, at the beginning of the great white throne judgment. There's suddenly going to be an opening of eyes, a removing, a destroying of a veil, and an understanding of the true God, and a way of life that God's given to us. The surface of the covering cast over all the people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So this day is a wonderful occasion. It's a time that will bring great happiness and joy. It's a time of the fulfillment of promises and dreams of God's servants. It's a very fulfillment of the dream of every human being, that they would have life. This day is a day of life. The last great day.